Okay, Matthew chapter 21. Let's uh, make our way there. We're back into our study of Matthew. This is our second week back, and uh, it's been an encouraging week of preparation. I told told some of you this week that it's just been like being back with an old friend. Um, You know, when you have those friends that are really, really close friends, and you can have amazing spatial distance between you and even gaps of time in seeing each other, and then you run into each other or you're on the phone, and you don't have to catch up. Like, it's just instantaneously like you were you were just together yesterday. That's the way I feel in Matthew. So um, if there was a struggle in the Psalms to keep up and to continue to process the context and work through it, we come to Matthew, there's a sense of familiarity where we can uh, really, really dive into what's here, having been with Christ all the way through Matthew's record. And I hope that you're encouraged to be back as uh, I am. And in the Passion Week, that's where we find ourselves in Matthew chapter 21. Beginning in verse number one, we turn the corner into the, the, final, the final movement toward Jerusalem. And uh, this will end at the cross, and uh, this will be the culmination of the ministry of Jesus. And he surely is confident of that. He's communicating that to his disciples. And uh, we see now he's moved into Jerusalem. He's staying just outside of town and coming in and out of town throughout this week, doing ministry teaching and instructing, confronting error and uh, false teachers. And we're going to experience all of that as we study through this 21st chapter and into the final stages of our study of Matthew. Let's read uh, together from the 21st chapter to establish our context a little bit. And then we'll pray and ask God to help us and we'll study his word uh, together this morning. Beginning in verse number 17, uh, we pick up a, a timeline, and so we'll start there, though that's not the paragraph break. seems to make sense for our study. Let's read verse 17 down through verse number 27. And leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethlehem and lodged there. So leaving the temple, leaving the crowds of people, um, he leaves and goes to Bethany and lodged there. In the morning, as he was returning to the city, he became hungry and seeing a fig tree by the wayside, He went to it and found nothing on it, but only leaves. And he said to it, may no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered at once. When the disciples saw, they marveled, saying, how did the fig tree wither at once? Jesus answered them, truly, I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. And when he entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came up to him as he was teaching and said, By what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? Jesus answered them, I also will ask you one question. And if you tell me the answer, then I also will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John. From where did it come? From heaven or from man? And they discussed it among themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say to us, Why then do you not believe him? But if we say from man, we are afraid of the crowd, for they all hold that John was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We do not know. And he said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority. I do these things. 
Father, thank you for this portion of your word that carries with it all of the promises and all of the the truth claims that the entirety of your revelation to us carries. These are your words to us. Granted through the power of your Holy Spirit as Matthew recorded them. Preserved thousands of years from language to language so that we might enjoy them in our own tongue. These are the words that go where nothing else can go. That the Spirit uses to pierce and divide and to examine our hearts. These are the words that renew our minds. That help us as we desire and pursue thinking your thoughts after you. These are the words that provide wisdom from heaven. That expose us to what you represent in all of your perfections. That we might, by the power of your grace through your spirit, resemble you. Live in your character. Mirror your attributes. These are your words. You have intentions for them that will not be thwarted. We submit ourselves to them. We ask for help as we study them. That we might have understanding. That we might gain knowledge. And that in love that knowledge might be applied to our lives. So that we might be hearers and doers of these words from Matthew chapter 21. We thank you for the privilege of spending this hour with our Savior in the testimony recorded here from Matthew. May we be changed. May we be more like Him. May we anticipate His presence. May we long for Him. May we be more effective for the cause of His kingdom. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Matthew chapter 21, verses 17 or verse 18 through 27 represent some of the most difficult territory in our study of Matthew. Particularly in the first paragraph, we find one of the strangest accounts of the activities of Jesus that we have in our whole New Testament record. In fact, this is such a distinct and difficult text in many ways that since we began over three years ago now in Matthew, I've known this was coming. I knew that eventually we would get to the fig tree. And we'd have to face, face the fig tree. And what in the world is going on in the account of Jesus cursing the fig tree? We have difficult blanket statements made from Jesus regarding prayer and faith to the twelve. And we have a quick and concise shutdown of a challenge from the religious leaders of the day. All of these things make this passage difficult for us or challenging to us as we come to it as students of God's word. But these components also make it particularly interesting to see how God will shape and mold our thinking as we examine carefully what's on the page. No gymnastics needed in our study, only careful attention to the details of the text. And the spirit of God will use it to shape and to mold us this morning. Beginning in verse number 1 of chapter 21, we have been presented with the authoritative entrance of the King, Jesus. The crowds were right to cry Hosanna to the Son of David. They were right to throw their 
their coats on the ground and to spread the palm branches down. They were right to do these things. He was fulfilling prophecy, coming on a donkey as the king and the son of David that would reign forever. His authority is unmatched. It has been from the beginning. And now it will be culminated as he establishes himself, not in political dominance, but in the sacrifice of his life. This crowd will not respond the same way as they do in verses 1 through 11 in chapter 21 in just a few short days. Many of them will scream for him to be crucified. Because in his authority and in the declaration of his authority, their expectations are not being met. Their personalized Messiah has not come. But the one from heaven is here. The Messiah of God, our scripture is calling. So the authority of Christ is on display in, a, in really a shocking way throughout chapter 21, chapter 2, and 23. Even today, when we get to the challenge from the Pharisees and from the, the scribes and the, San, the Sanhedrin really is who that is, the chief priests and the scribes, when we get to that challenge, we'll begin the first of nine, nine teaching venues that Jesus will utilize in one day. Nine of them. Based on the Revelation and the Synoptic Gospels, that is Matthew, Mark, and Luke, he's doing all of this teaching within the temple. Nine different teaching Records given to us. And then he will retreat from the temple to the Mount of Olives and he will give his last discourse to his disciples on the Mount of Olives. So this is the authority of Jesus being illustrated to us, being lived out, being practiced by him in his instruction. This morning, we'll see three exercises just in these two paragraphs, three exercises of the kingly authority of Jesus on this third day of the week of the cross. We didn't do this last week, and I regret not doing it with you, going back and establishing something of a timeline. Now, we know at this point in our study of Matthew that Matthew's not working with a chronological history mindset as he records Jesus' ministry. He's not interested in you setting up a timeline with different events on a page. Luke would be your servant in that task, and Mark as well, though quite a bit more brief than Luke. Matthew, rather, is establishing themes, themes of the messianic proof of Christ. So that at the end of Matthew, we are utterly convinced that he's the promised one from heaven. He's the fulfillment of the prophecies. He is the Messiah. That is Matthew's intent. And so though Matthew does not detail the chronological order of events, and even today we'll run into that with Matthew, I do want to establish for you something of a rough framework for us to understand where we are in this week of the cross. It would seem, based upon Mark and Luke's accounts, that the triumphal entry happens after the Sabbath. So Sunday morning, the very first day of the week, the triumphal entry takes place. Jesus enters the city. Upon the entry to the city, he goes to the temple. He interacts with the crowds. He interacts with some of the leaders. He returns to the village. Tuesday, he comes from the, or Monday rather, he comes from the village. He, Mark would tell us in chapter 11, curses a fig tree on the way into Jerusalem. They spend the day there, they go out, they come back in the morning, and on Tuesday 
of the week of the Passion, the third day of the week of the cross, we find our account beginning in verse number 18. So verse number 17, he goes out to the city that is Sunday night and he sleeps in Bethany, which is just outside of the city of Jerusalem. And in the morning, we now have moved all the way from Sunday night to Tuesday morning. Monday is not recorded to us as Mark does in chapter 11. If you'd like to read that account, you can follow that in Mark chapter 11. And we'll refer to it repeatedly through our study this morning. So we are on we're on Tuesday. Tuesday of the week of the passion. And, you know, because, you know, basic events that the most clear understanding that we have is by Friday, Jesus is on a cross. So Sunday, we have an entry point in Jerusalem Tuesday, we have the events that we'll look at today, and we're only, you know what it's like on Tuesday, right? Wednesdays, you're over the hump day for the week. If you're, if you're a working person, you get to Wednesday and you start thinking, we're almost there. We're almost there. We're very close to the end. And Jesus is taking every moment, and Matthew is recording the most important themes for us to be gripped by the kingly authority of Jesus. You'll remember the big idea over this section from last week. Jesus is the king of the kingdom of heaven. He's the king of the kingdom. And he's here. He's on earth. He is presenting himself as king. So Jesus is the king and his authority is the delight of all of his kingdom citizens. And in contrast, it's the stumbling block of all those who reject him. So you will see as we study through this, I trust that Jesus authority is the delight. It's the instruction. It's the it's the food. It's the resource of those who delight and follow him. And it will consistently be the stumbling block for those who have rejected him. So this morning, we'll see three exercises of that kingly authority that is present in his arrival to Jerusalem, beginning in verse number 18. We'll see, first of all, that Jesus curses in an exercise of authority. He curses religious hypocrisy. Secondly, he affirms, he promotes genuine faith. And thirdly, he humiliates. He humiliates potential challengers. So three exercises of his authority. If verses 1 through 16 establish that authority... And even the cleansing of the temple exposed principles of that authority. Now we see it exercised in these next verses. He will curse religious hypocrisy. He will affirm genuine faith. And he will humiliate potential challengers. All operating as king of the kingdom. And no less king in the temple of his heavenly father. So let's look beginning in verse number 18. Having had... The context of time established in verse number 17. He goes from the city of Jerusalem back to Bethany. He sleeps there. And in the morning, Matthew gives us no details. He just says, in the morning he was returning to the city. He became hungry. We have no concept of a gap between what is taking place now and what will take place in verse number 20. So here we are. Monday morning is taking place. He's returning to the city. He's hungry. And he sees a fig tree by the wayside. He went to it and found nothing on it but only leaves. And he said to it, may no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered at once. Now Tuesday. When the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, how did the fig tree wither at once? 
And Jesus answers and teaches them about faith and prayer. Maybe we should go to Mark chapter 11 just to establish. I don't want you to see it in the text itself. So go to Mark chapter 11 and let me show you the timeline here from Mark's record. It will, I hope, clarify for you a little bit. Mark chapter 11, just a few pages to your right, if you're unfamiliar with your Bible, and verse number 12. Picking up at the same point that verse number 18 in Matthew chapter 21 picks up, Mark says, on the following day, when they came from Bethany, that is on Monday, he was hungry, and seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to it, if he could find anything on it. He went to see if he could find anything on it, and when he came to it, He found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. Now, notice what happens now. Verse number 15, and they came to Jerusalem, entered the temple. The activities go on in the temple. And verse number 19, and when evening came, they went out of the city. So, logically, they're going back to Bethany. Verse number 20, as they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered to its roots. So Monday has taken place back to the home where they're staying. Now, Tuesday morning, they come and they see the fig tree is withered. That is all caught up in the at once in Matthew's record. Matthew has been brief in a lot of his accounts when he doesn't care to make much of the chronology. He wants simply to present the theme. The first exercise of authority in Matthew chapter 21, if you make your way back there, is that Jesus curses religious hypocrisy now i'm aware i'm aware that when we read verse number 18 19 and 20 we don't see anything of the word hypocrisy or religious we just see a fig tree with no figs there is no doubt that this is a strange account but this account demands of us an old testament understanding that we bring to the reading of Matthew. Matthew's original readers would have had in their minds and in their context of interpreting this account from Jesus, and the disciples no doubt were capable of it, though they were blinded to it in the moment, the ability to think Old Testamently when they read this account. Unfortunately, I think sadly, really, as I studied this and as I was shocked by my study, I was saddened at the shock of my study. Because the Old Testament does not inform my thinking in the way that it should. The details of the Old Testament are not as clear as they should be. And the themes that God presents in the Old Testament, even the pictures that he presents, are not as readily available to my mind as they would have been to Matthew's first readers. Let me explain to you why I believe that this is an exercise of Jesus cursing in visible, living, parable, religious hypocrisy. In Isaiah chapter 34 and verse 4, Jeremiah chapter 8 and verse 13, that's Isaiah 34, 4, Jeremiah 8, 13, Jeremiah 24, 1 to 10, Hosea 2, 12, and Joel 1, 7, we find one picture used over and over again. Isaiah 34, 4, Jeremiah 8, 13, Jeremiah 24, 1 to 10, Hosea 2, 12, and Joel 1, 7, all present the same picture to us in speaking of the curse of Israel that is, is being placed upon them from their covenant God. And the picture? A fig tree that's being torn down 
or having its figs removed. The picture is the same in every one of those accounts through the prophets. There was this this parable being used of a fig tree representing the nation of Israel and God in his in his wrath against them for their disobedience and disregard of his word, disregard for his law represents them as a fig tree that's being torn down, killed, withered away. Its branches are white. It has no fruit. It is a fruitless fig tree. So, on the way to Jerusalem, on Monday morning, Jesus is humanly hungry. And in his human hunger, he notices a fig tree. And in the moment of seeing the fig tree, has opportunity to accomplish two tasks. One initial task is to see if he can deal with his human hunger problem. He was a real human being. He was really hungry. He really was hoping there were some early season variety figs on this tree. As Mark says, it's out of season. This tree should not have been in leaf. But it was. And Jesus walks over anticipating maybe there's some bitter green figs on this that I could, I could still eat and munch on on our way into the city. It's a picture that we don't have often of Jesus. In fact, the last one I can think of is the, the disciples picking grain through the field on the Sabbath. To put it in our common vernacular, Jesus has the munchies. And he goes to the fig tree to find some trail mix for the walk into Jerusalem. But what he finds is a second opportunity. And that is an opportunity to put before the disciples a living parable of what they will encounter in Jerusalem. What they will encounter in the temple. What they will encounter in the religious leaders. What they will ultimately encounter in the passion. The details here are important to us. In verse number 19, it says that seeing the fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it but only leaves. I am always concerned when I have an agricultural illustration in Bible study because of who I'm talking to. But outside help informs me that fig trees only go into leaf when they bear fruit. So leaves and fruit come at the same time for the fig tree. So Jesus goes there and finds only leaves. In other words, what he sees in this tree is a tree that from the outside says there's fruit here. There's there's life here. There's something going on here. There's fruit being born on this tree. But when he gets there, it's only leaves. There's no proof in the pudding. There's nothing there to grab. There's no true fruit. Therefore, Jesus turns on this inanimate object as a living parable to give to the disciples. And he curses this tree. I've often read this and thought that Jesus seems rather irritable in these paragraphs. Gets to the tree. I, I, I read my humanity into these. I know you do the same thing at different portions of your Bible. We read our humanity into the into the narrative and we read our sinful humanity into the narrative, not the perf- perfect humanity of Christ. So we see him and I see myself getting to the tree and I'm, I'm hungry and I'm already blood sugar's low and I'm hungry and I want something to eat. I get to the fridge. I open up the cheese drawer because what else could you want but cheese? There's no cheese. What good is a fridge without cheese? I'm angry. Slam the door. Sulk back to the pantry to try to find some crackers or some other secondary treat that might sustain me until dinner. You see, that, that's not at all what's going on here. Jesus is not frustrated sinfully with the tree. He doesn't, he doesn't 
He doesn't under his breath say, say some exclamation of frustration and then say, that's it. You're never getting fruit on your tree again. This reminds me of the false gospels, the gospel of Thomas and other gospels that unfortunately have become very popular because of uh, secular writers that have utilized them for novels and movies. Uh, in, the, in the false gospels, there are often accounts of his childhood where Jesus is playing a game and he loses and he just zaps everybody on the other team. Um, he makes things disappear. Uh, he's, he's a little kid with heaven's power in these gospel accounts. That's kind of the picture that I, I can read faultfully into this narrative. But what's happening here is nothing of frustration or sinful response. Jesus isn't even just in the moment reacting to this tree. He sees the tree for what it is and he utilizes it with the prophecy of Isaiah, Jeremiah, Hosea, and Joel coursing through his mind. He presents this fig tree as an illustration of his curse on religious hypocrisy. The nation of Israel really seen in its religious leaders mirror this fig tree. Oh, they're in leaf and there should be early fruit there. May not be ripe, but there should be fruit on this tree that is Jerusalem. But there is nothing there. It's merely external. There's nothing behind it. And so this symbol becomes critical to the disciples. And that's why Matthew records it for us here. The triumphal entry brings the king to Israel. But the religious hypocrisy will not go unnoticed by the king. The fig tree illustrates the curse of Israel. The ones who on the outside say, we want the Messiah. We look for the Messiah. We long for the Messiah. But when you get close enough, there's no fruit. There's nothing there. Jesus curses such religious hypocrisy. The priorities and the judgments of Christ have not changed. He hates religious hypocrisy to this day. And though this picture is directly connected to Israel and their rejection of their Messiah, it is applicable for us as we read it as Gentiles grafted in. Our Savior in His kingly authority rejects and curses, denounces all who would put up a religious front. This is timely for our day. Those who would say, I love Jesus. Are trees with leaves on them. That is fig trees with leaves on them. But when we get close and when we examine the tree of our life, do we find fruit? That's the illustration that Jesus is using. That's why this happened. It's a tree in leaf, but only in leaf. and Therefore, it receives the curse of Messiah. I trust that you don't feel bad for the tree. Right? It's the tree's creator. The tree doesn't feel it. It doesn't cringe as it's being wasted away. This is Jesus utilizing creation and an inanimate object to teach a tangible lesson to the disciples. Those that would bear fruit would be the ones that receive the affection and the commendation of the king. So Jesus curses religious hypocrisy. Secondly, Jesus affirms genuine faith. Again, I empathize with the disciples in verse number 20 on Tuesday morning when they're coming back into the city. They see that same fig tree. And now this thing is as dead as a doornail. It's just there, barely there, waiting for a strong wind to knock it over. 
It's brittle. The bark is falling off. That's one of the pictures that's used in the prophets. And they come up with the very human response. They do not say, Lord, remind us of the spiritual implications of this curse. Tell us again about why this is important within your relationship to the nation of Israel. They're not asking hard questions. They just say, how did that happen? That's all they want to know. I I mean, I get that. Uh, They're caught up in the moment of saying, how did this happen so fast? It's always striking to me that the disciples at this point in their relationship with Jesus, after this much time with him and this many miracles being seen, they're still marveling every time. Because it's outside of human comprehension that one could bear the authority to simply speak to a tree and say you'll never bear fruit again and on the next day it's dead there's nothing there this is the authority of heaven jesus is the king of heaven and the kingdom of heaven on earth and so jesus utilizes this opportunity not to rebuke them in verse number 21 not to chide them for their merely external view, but to instruct them and to go to the heart of the matter. If the fruit, fruitless tree along the way symbolizes the fruitless nation of Israel and its religious leaders in their hypocrisy, then Jesus capitalizes on the question of the disciples to point to the heart of all who are his true kingdom citizens. And Jesus here, secondly, affirms genuine faith so king jesus curses religious hypocrisy external without fruit and king jesus affirms genuine faith he promotes it to the disciples jesus answers them truly i say to you or if perhaps you were raised reading the old king james verily verily i say unto you i say unto thee if you have faith and do not doubt You will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, that is the Mount of Olives, which is right there for them to see, you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. Now, if there is imagery problems in our understanding of verses 19 or 18, 19 and 20, There are theological problems that plague us when we read at face value verse 21 and 22. Because Jesus is making big blanket statements to the disciples. And Matthew is not caveating it. He doesn't include a little parenthesis that says, Oh, and by the way, be sure that you read this passage with these other passages informing your understanding. He just simply says, this is what Jesus said. If you have faith. And you don't doubt when you pray, you can not only do this kind of activity, you can move a mountain into the sea, which is his favorite illustration of something that they can't believe could ever happen. Heaven's power is accessible for those who have genuine saving faith in the God of heaven. Jesus affirms this genuine faith. He promotes faith and he does so with shocking instructions. Jesus says, if you have faith, power, supernatural power, is available to you. Brothers and sisters, let's not just nod our heads and just act like we're going on with our day. Jesus says in verse number 21, if you have faith and do not doubt, 
You will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken and thrown into the sea, it will happen. Supernatural power from heaven is available to the kingdom citizens. But it comes only on heavenly conditions. It is a power that is granted through prayer that is offered in faith. Let's go back just a few pages to associate ourselves with this same theme in verse number seven or chapter number 17 in Matthew. And you'll remember this when we get there. Jesus has just been transfigured on the mountain. Elijah and Moses have been there with him. The disciples come down from the mountain. That is the ones that got to go up. Peter, James and John. They come down the mountain and in verse 14, the other disciples are faced with this very embarrassing situation. A man comes to Jesus, kneels before him, and says, help my son. He's an epileptic. He falls into the fire. It's a demon. I took him to your disciples, verse 16, and they could not heal him. Now Jesus responds to that situation, and he answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of him, and the boy was healed instantly. Then the disciples came sheepishly to Jesus in private and said, Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, Because of your little faith. For truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, Move from here to there, and it will move. And nothing will be impossible for you. This is the same theme that we find picked up Verses 21 through 23, or 22 rather, in Matthew chapter 21. Jesus informs the disciples in this moment of the shock of the fig tree being cursed and instantly dead. That it is faith that warrants such power from heaven. It is important for us to read this, though Matthew doesn't include a parenthesis for us. It's important for us to read this in context of our New Testament. And we can just stay in Matthew and be helped. Remember Matthew chapter 6, verses 5 through 15? There's a familiar prayer there. It's known as what? No, what's it known as? There's the prayer in Matthew 6. Good, that's two of you that know. Um, It's the Lord's prayer is what we know that as. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. That's the Lord's Prayer. It's in Matthew chapter 6. And in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus is not saying how he prays. That is the Lord's Prayer. It should be called the Disciples' Prayer because he's teaching them how to pray. And you remember that he begins with the character of God. And so genuine faith in prayer always is matched with the character of God. It is God's glory that's at stake. It's God's glory that is designed to be accomplished in our prayers. So those prayers that are offered to God in keeping with his character, in desire for his will to come and be done on earth as it is in heaven, those prayers, without doubt, prayed in faith, are answered in the affirmative. Now, brothers and sisters, Matthew chapter 6 does not just clear this up because Matthew chapter 7, verses 7 through 11, where Jesus again instructs on prayer, it doesn't clear it up. And where in James chapter 4, When Jesus is talking about conflict and he says you don't have because you don't ask. And when you do ask, you ask wrongly to consume it for your own lusts. That doesn't clear up the problem. Because the problem here is that Jesus says if human beings, finite created beings, talk to their heavenly father 
in faith, compatible with his will, in keeping with his character, without doubt, the answer is always yes. So God is sovereign in all that he does. No one can mess with God's plans. He does exactly what he pleases. He sits in the heavens and he accomplishes his purposes. No one can thwart God, Job would say. And Jesus says, there is a way that you can talk to God and he will do exactly what you ask him to do. That's the problem. And it is one that will strike you again and again and again until we come to understand that prayer, that is prayer in faith by the people of God in keeping with the character of God for the purposes of God is the means by which God accomplishes his sovereign purpose. So brothers and sisters, why is it as strong believers in the sovereignty of God in all things, in his creation and in salvation and in all things in between? Why do we talk to God in prayer? Because it is the means by which the sovereign one of heaven accomplishes his purposes on earth. And we, like the disciples, might say, how did that happen? And the answer is, I don't have the slightest idea. But the God of heaven has it all carried out in his mind. What he communicates to us is prayer is the vehicle by which he uses or accomplishes his purposes. You communicating to him in faith and keeping with his character in designs that he has set out for us. When you are praying without doubt, he utilizes those prayers. He answers them, really answers prayer in the affirmative to accomplish what he's designed to to do. This is the mystery of God's sovereignty in relationship to human responsibility and yet it is a must for us otherwise the sovereignty of god will rob us of our prayer life and we will become fatalistic god's going to do what god's going to do why would i talk to him about it or prayer is only for my benefit so i pray to god and he just sits there and puts up with it because it's really just for me to know that he's god and so it's all just for my benefit i'm just praying to him and telling him these things and he's like okay yeah i mean yes i, I know all that no No, God actually personally interacts with us. And Jesus tells the disciples that prayers offered in faith without doubting, whatever they may be in keeping with God's purposes, plans, and will, the answer is yes. Now, this is equally confusing because as a kid, I prayed for a four-wheeler every time I read this. I thought, maybe this time. How do I get enough faith that I'm not doubting that it's going to happen and that I'm going to get it? But unfortunately, God's plans and design for my life did not include a four-wheeler as a kid. Nor did my heartbeat cry out for his purposes and will and desires to be done in my life. I just wanted the four-wheeler to have fun. That's what James is talking about. Chapter 4, verses 2 and 3. I was asking God to do something for my benefit. For my enjoyment. And he never responds in the affirmative to my prayers for myself and my my selfish ambitions. We pray for our own circumstances. Yes. In submission to his designs for us. Father, give me wisdom that I might walk in a way that would bring glory to you. The answer. 
Yes, I will grant it abundantly. Father, shape me and mold me as long as this trial exists. I believe that you will make me more like Christ. I want it. I ask you to make me more like Christ. Is that what God has designed for you? Yes. What will the answer be from heaven? Yes. And in some mystery, it will not be the same way unless you ask him. Because he works through prayer to accomplish his purposes. We could spend all day here. We can't kind of want to, but we can't. Perhaps nowhere is there more need for us to pause and consider that believing that the power of God in heaven is accessible to us radically alters our prayer lives. There are brothers and sisters in this room that you may or may not know are, by the familiar term in American evangelicalism, prayer warriors. There are testimonies all over this room of people who know experientially this is true. They are people who pray consistently in keeping with the character of God for the grand purposes of God, and they consistently see Him work over and over and over again. One of the delights of my life as a pastor is to hear about it. I just, in the last weeks, have heard several accounts of, I asked God to provide an opportunity that I might share Christ with a certain group of people. And He did. He did. He, he provided it. I've been praying and asking God that He would soften the hearts of, of a loved one or, or a friend, that I, I might have a relationship that would be meaningful for the kingdom. And they came to me and said, can we... Can we read the Bible? Can we study together? Those are affirmative answers to prayer. As one brother said, God is alive. He's at work. King Jesus affirms genuine faith. It's a perfect moment for him to instruct the disciples on the internal fruit of the ones that are kingdom citizens. They don't just have leaves. They're the real deal. And in prayer, with faith, without doubting, they see God move mountains. Supernatural faith or supernatural power granted because of praying faith. Jesus affirms it. Thirdly, as the king in all of his authority, which is the delight of the citizens and it is the stumbling block of the enemies, Jesus exercises authority not just in the the cursing of religious hypocrisy, not just in the affirmation of genuine faith, but thirdly, in his humiliation, Jesus humiliates potential challengers. And this is just brief. We'll read it. I think it's self-explanatory for the most part. When he entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came up to him as he was teaching and said, by what authority are you doing these things? Okay, there's the question. The Sanhedrin rightly challenged Jesus if he were just any other person. You cannot come into the temple and begin to teach publicly and gather people around you and start telling them what God has said to them. That This is unacceptable behavior. If you go now and if you were to walk into a synagogue and, and just gather people around you, sit down and let them all stand around you and just start telling them what God says, there would be rabbis who, who come very quickly to you and not graciously to say, 
Who are you? What are you doing? All right, so the Sanhedrin, to the outside viewing eye, they're just doing what they should do. They're coming to Jesus and saying, by what authority are you doing what you're doing in, in, in all this in the temple? By what authority? But, but you know, and I know the Sanhedrin are not doing that. The chief priests and the scribes are not doing this because they're curious about the credentials of Jesus. They're doing it because they hate the fame of Jesus, and they recognize that the crowds are being swayed toward Jesus. They can have none of it. So they challenge him. They are potential challengers. Jesus doesn't even take up the challenge. He just humiliates them in front of the people and then leaves them to wallow in their humiliation. In fact, what he will do is pile on humiliation as he goes from parable to parable to parable leading up to woe to you, woe to you seven times in chapter 23. So, Jesus humiliates these potential challengers by responding with a question. This is no politician who answers a question with a question. This is Jesus, the king of heaven, being challenged by potential challengers, and he he gives them an ultimatum. You know what? I'll play this game only if you answer the question. Jesus doesn't need information either. He has a very clear intent. And as the king of the kingdom, his intent is to expose and to humiliate those that are merely leaf-bearing trees with no fruit. To expose the emptiness and the hypocrisy of these religious leaders who are rejecting him and who will ultimately lead the majority to hang him on a cross. So Jesus knows that these challengers or potential challengers have already rejected the revelation to their own question. The answer's already been given, and they've rejected him. Now notice what happens. So he says, where did John the Baptist come from? The ministry of John the Baptist, the baptism. That was the baptism of repentance. You remember that back in chapter 3? John is baptizing people. This is not Christian baptism like we've just celebrated recently and enjoyed together. This is, this is Jewish baptism of repentance. John came as a forerunner to the Messiah, and he baptized people who were saying, I'm preparing for the Messiah's coming. I'm repenting. I'm setting my heart right with Yahweh God. I'm obeying him and I'm preparing for the coming of the Messiah. So John the Baptist is baptizing people. And it was widely known that he was the second Elijah, that he was the prophet. He was a forerunner. So Jesus says to them in front of everyone, where did his baptism come from? Knowing that the answer to the question will will hang them. If they say, as they consider together, that it's from God, then he'll say, why didn't you believe him? Why? Well, because John the Baptist said, that's the Messiah. When he baptized Jesus. And it was at Jesus' baptism that heaven, God, spoke. The Father spoke from heaven and said, this is my Son in whom I'm well pleased. So Jesus here turns the tables and he humiliates them. If they say he's a man, the crowds will hate them. And they'll defeat their own purpose. Jesus has let out the line. He's got the noose on the line. And he's just asking them a question. And as they walk, it's pulling tighter and tighter. This is a lose-lose situation for the potential challengers. And in the end, they say, we don't know. So while they challenge Jesus' authority, he challenges their competency to judge this situation. Now, what is there for us to glean from verses 23 through 27? Jesus withholds the information that they want because he knows that it's not information that they need. 
They've rejected revelation. Any and all who challenge the authority of Jesus find themselves humiliated in his presence. Brothers and sisters, this is no different today than it was then. The kingship of Christ necessitates that he stands and all others bow. And in an eternal sense, every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that he's Lord. None will be left without bowing before him, humiliated or in eternal gratitude for his grace. One way or the other, all will acknowledge who he is and the worship that is due his name. There are no challengers who can defeat our Savior, the King of Heaven, the ultimate sovereign authority. He's crushed the head of the leader of the challengers at the cross. When you face challenges to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, will you embrace and obey Him as Sovereign One? Or will you waver? Not knowing if He stands up under scrutiny. Listen, as an exercise of His authority, Jesus curses religious hypocrisy. He affirms genuine faith and He humiliates potential challengers. Today and here on Tuesday of the Passion Week. Let me ask you a couple questions, just two questions at the end here. Number one, have you bowed to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords? Have you repented? That's the Bible concept for ceasing from one direction, turning the opposite and going a new direction. Have you turned away from your own agenda, your own righteousness, your own sovereignty, perceived sovereignty over your life? Have you ceased from that way and have you turned and are you now following Christ? Are you pursuing Him, obeying Him, following Him? Have you bowed to Him in submission? The Gospel of Jesus Christ is that God of very gods, the Son of God, the second person eternally existent, the second person of a triune God. It makes our heads hurt. God is one in three persons. God came and took on flesh became a human being, setting aside the rights to his divine attributes. He didn't lose them. He set them aside and humbled himself and became a man. He obeyed the law of God perfectly. No sin. Zilch. And he went to a cross. Now, why would he be killed at a cross if he committed no sin? Because in being killed at the cross, he substituted himself for sinners who believe. And he took their sin punishment. On himself. His father poured out his wrath on his son at the cross, not because the son had sinned, but because I had sinned. And because you had sinned. And all the sins of all who are believing are piled on to the punishment of Christ at the cross. And three days later, he rises from the dead, conquers death, conquers sin. And reigns in eternal majesty. That's the good news. If you will turn from your own wisdom. And believe what you can't see. If you are granted eyes to see the greatness of Jesus Christ. In his substitutionary life. Where his obedience is credited to you. As a sinner. You get his obedience. Because he took your sin punishment. And God allows you into his presence. 
Not begrudgingly, but as sons and daughters in adoption. As slaves bought out of slavery, redeemed. This is the good news. But it will cost you your own sovereignty. So I ask, have you bowed your knee or are you bearing leaves with no fruit? Oh, you're here. You're worshiping. You you do the activities, but there is no heart produced fruit of righteousness in your life. Secondly, Christian, how will you this week represent obedience to the authority of Jesus? So here's three exercises of it of it. He 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 curses religious hypocrisy. He affirms genuine faith. And and, and in a final act against those potential challengers, he humiliates those that would stand against him. So how will you mirror and obey these exercises from Christ? Will you also hate hypocrisy in your own life? Will you weed it out? Will you dig until you find the root source and get it out Will you set aside the facade? Will you stop giving canned answers to your brothers and sisters in Christ about how you're doing spiritually? Will you actually talk about sin? Will you bear fruit? Will you be genuinely pursuing? Not merely putting on a show. Will we share his hatred for religious hypocrisy? Will we share in his promotion and, 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 and exaltation of genuine faith? Will we pursue this? Will we look like Christ? And will we stand with him as he humiliates all challengers? Will we allow him through the power of his word to answer every critic? Or will we compromise? Will we be afraid? Will we join Peter in saying, I don't know him. I'm not one of his. This week presents us with the opportunity to follow Christ as authoritative king. Let these exercises of that authority be the opportunity for us to pursue obedience to our Christ and to look like him. To share his priorities and his passions. We desire to do that because of that good news that we just talked about. And that good news that we just talked about of the coming of Christ, the sacrifice of Christ, the resurrection of Christ. is something that comes and goes. It's present and it fades There are times when we're mindful of it and then we're not mindful of it. And God in his infinite wisdom gave us a spiritual alarm clock. He gave us a reminder. He gave us a a memo that pops up consistently when we gather with our brothers and sisters in Christ. Through a little piece of bread, a little cup of juice. We're brought all the way back to the cross and we remember a body sacrificed. And we remember blood really shed so that we would be his followers so that we might enjoy the fruits of genuine faith born in us as a gift from God Ephesians 2 9 so we're about to do that together Marty and Charlie are going to come and serve us and as they prepare to do that let's take a moment to prepare our hearts we just encountered Christ again Let's pause. Let's consider whether we would be hypocritical in religious hypocrisy even now in our remembrance of the cross. that set aside our sin for us that presented peace for us with God and with one another. So let's silently consider this. Examine ourselves. This is only for believers. Examine yourself whether or not you be in the faith.
and walking in obedience. And then we'll remember together.